You're listening to Televisionary, the podcast about the shows that shaped us. In this episode, we take you through the history, key moments, and lasting impact of the Mary Tyler Moore show with a few detours along the way. She died in a lawnmower accident. Oh my God. Their dad doesn't want to talk to them about taking birth control. <laughs> you know, I, I was saying for years, Uzo Aduba is the next dad asner. Hello. Hello! I'm Cody Hoffman. And I'm Elena Hillard. And... and <laughs> <laughs> Elena, sorry, I cut you off. Go ahead and say what you were going to say. I was literally just going to say that I'm excited to be here today to be recording this episode. Today we are going to be covering The Mary Tyler Moore Show. We sure are. The Mary Tyler Moore Show is, in my humble opinion, one of the most influential television shows of all time. Perhaps even the most influential. That's up for debate. We'll get into it. But yeah, I don't think its influence can be overstated. So we have a lot to talk about today, as we do in every episode, because this podcast is one in which we discuss the ways that the medium of television has influenced our world. The ways that individual television shows have had an impact on pop culture, on society, on the world at large, on the medium of television. And Mary Tyler Moore Show is one of the shows that has made the biggest impact, I think. It, it was interesting because I had never really watched it before and just started watching it in preparation for this episode. And it's almost hard to understand the impact that it, it's made because in watching it, it's almost like watching something that would be on the air today. And you really have to remind yourself that this is a show that's 50 years old now, yes. pretty much. So yeah, I mean, it's impact both in front of and behind the scenes on the TV industry and the genre of the sitcom, it can't really be understated. Wait, you mean it can't really be overstated? <laughs> sure, can't really be overstated. That's correct. <laughs> okay, so we wanted to start off this episode just by sharing a little bit of our personal relationship, I guess, to the show. Basically, how familiar with the show we are, how much of it we've watched, things like that. So I just finished watching all of the Mary Tyler Moore show a couple of weeks ago. I had watched it for the first time. I had always known what an influential show it was considered to be, but I had never seen it in reruns or anything, which kind of surprises me after having watched it now and seeing just how funny it is and how well it holds up, I was surprised that I didn't see it more growing up on, you know, TV land or Nick at Night or anything like that. But I just finished watching it. I easily would consider it one of my favorite TV shows ever at this point, And I feel like I could watch it a million more times and still enjoy it just as much. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of in the same boat with having not seen it like growing up. And I honestly had a very different idea of what I, I thought it was. And I'm not sure if this is because Mary Tyler Moore herself went on to do some sort of variety type shows, or if I was just mixing it up with like the Carol Burnett show or other shows that were on at the time. But I, I didn't even think that it was like a scripted show. I thought it was more of like a sketch show or like a variety show or something like that. I had absolutely no idea. And then I knew we wanted to cover it for this podcast and so I started watching it myself and I've 
really been enjoying it. I've watched most of the first season and then I hit up like really influential episodes just to watch those as well. But I am going to watch all of it and it's definitely on its way to becoming one of my favorite shows. And I think it's so weird that it wasn't in reruns on TV land or anything like that when I was a kid. Yeah, I don't know if it's just that it had been like off the air long enough by that point where they were kind of just starting to replace it with new shows. I remember shows like Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley, even Full House and Family Matters being on, you know, all the time as a kid. Uh, And those shows came a little bit later, but not that much later than Mary Tyler Moore. In fact, I think Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley were on at the same time in the later seasons of Mary Tyler Moore show. So for those shows to have, you know, still been replayed constantly (laughs) and Mary Tyler Moore, which arguably is a higher caliber, higher quality show to just kind of be looked over is surprising to me. But I know apparently it did air on Nick at Night, but again, never saw it myself on there. So Mm. who really could could know for sure? Maybe that was before our time. Maybe. Because we are so youthful and, (laughs) and juvenile. I know, you can't see our luminous faces, but you can hear our youthful voices. That's right. Hopefully we have as much elasticity in our voices as we do in our faces. (laughs) I sure hope so, Cody. And (laughs) listening to this and hearing my vocal fry will be like, what are you talking about? Uh, But anyway, do you want to get into the history of the show? Sure, let's do that. Okay. So, The Mary Tyler Moore Show ran from 1970 to 1977 on CBS. So, Mary Tyler Moore stars as Mary Richards, a self-sufficient 30-something woman living in Minneapolis and working as the associate producer of local TV station WJM's 6 o'clock newscast. She, in the first episode, moves to Minneapolis from a small town after having ended a relationship with a man who she was, you know, kind of planning to marry and then jets off to the big city to do her own thing for a while. So that sets up the premise of the show. Supporting characters include her co-workers at WJM, her boss Lou Grant, played by Ed Asner, news anchor Ted Baxter, played by Ted Knight, and news writer Murray Slaughter, played by Gavin McLeod. In addition to her best friend and upstairs neighbor, Rhoda Morgenstern, and landlady Phyllis Lindstrom, played by Valerie Harper and Cloris Leachman, respectively. After Rhoda and Phyllis spun off to their own shows in later seasons, the show added new characters, Sue Ann Nivens, host of WJM's Happy Homemaker show, who was played by Betty White, and Georgette Franklin, played by Georgia Engel, who was Rhoda's co-worker turned Ted Baxter's girlfriend and then wife. And I think it's important that we talk about the supporting characters because this is a show where the supporting characters really made the show. Yeah, I think this was really one of the first shows to utilize a cast of supporting characters in such an important way. And it is definitely what made the show so enjoyable to watch and also really changed the way in which shows were made from this point forward. I think the way that this show handled its supporting characters and treated them as much like a part of the story as the main character influenced basically every television show to come after the show aired. Yes. I think before 
Mary Tyler Moore, you had most shows focusing on one or maybe two lead characters and whatever they were doing was the only thing that was happening and anyone else who was on the show was just feeding their actions was just contributing to whatever was going on with them and mary tyler moore gave characters their own little side adventures and their you know own storylines and their own personalities even to an extent that they hadn't really had before yeah and i think it's also worth noting that Mary Tyler Moore herself, when the show was being developed and she knew she was going to be getting her own sitcom, I really do think that she was very much responsible for wanting to surround herself with really talented actors and giving them roles that would help the show become what it is. Like she didn't want the show to be totally centered on herself, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I think that's true. Based on things that I've read, she wasn't always super confident in her comedic acting abilities. So I think that was intentional on her part to surround herself with people who could be funnier (laughs) than she thought she was just to make sure the show had something to fall back on if she felt like she wasn't, you know, keeping the comedy alive enough. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I guess that's a kind of a good lead into the next point, which is that Mary Tyler Moore started the production company and MTM Enterprises with her then husband, Grant Tinker. The Mary Tyler Moore show was their first production that launched in 1970, as we said. And they were responsible for pretty much the entire creative enterprise alongside James L. Brooks and Alan Burns, who Grant Tinker hired to create and run the show. They had had several other successes on television in the past, some notable failures as well, including the show My Mother the Car, which um, is probably not a show that we will be talking about here on the Televisionary Podcast. What do you mean? It's it's an American classic. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to discredit it. I, I may have overlooked its influence. We'll have to reconsider that. That was sarcasm. But anyway, the four of them basically were the main minds behind the show. And James L. Brooks and Alan Burns especially felt it was important to have as many women contributing to this show about women (laughs) as possible, which, believe it or not, was a novel concept in 1970. They hired tons of female writers out of about 75 writers that are credited over the life of the series, about 25 or a third were female. Which isn't even that far off from like the percentage on a show today of female writers. No, that's so true. It's just crazy that that was so, you know, I don't want to say controversial, but among the television industry, there was just kind of this idea that writing was a man's game. Yeah. And many other shows had zero female writers and virtually none had more than single digits if they had any. So Mary Tyler Moore show just blew everyone else's expectations out of the water for how women could claim their space within the world of comedy writing. Yeah, and they really gave a lot of people chances too. Like they had a lot of female writers who had written for other shows, but they also really groomed women that had not a lot of writing experience to then write on the show. And some of these women went on to have really full writing careers, Mm -hmm. uh, which I just think is 
amazing. And I think that they, James L. Brooks and Alan Burns and, you know, the other minds behind the show really had this attitude, both with like the writing staff, but even with casting the supporting characters, they really let people you know, people came in to read for roles and said, I think I would be better for this other part. And they gave them the chance. They gave people the chance to write. I don't know. They had a lot of faith in people. They took a lot of chances. And I think that that ultimately helped the show become as special as it was, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Oh, totally. Yeah, I definitely agree that they, I guess, I don't want to overuse this word, but they were visionary in a way that they saw the way that television could change because it was supposed to be a reflection of society. You know, they saw the potential for TV to actually reflect what was happening in real life. And they didn't see it living up to that potential or even coming close to it. So they knew that it could, you know, be a way to show what is happening in the world. And they took those chances to try to do that. And it obviously paid off. Yeah. All right. So the show ran for seven seasons on CBS. I think we've already said that and garnered a slew of awards, including 29 Emmys throughout the course of its run, including two Emmy, at least two Emmys every year that it was on the air, which is a pretty phenomenal feat. The 29 Emmys mark was a record that it held for a series until Frasier broke that record in 2002. At least one of the actors and one of the actresses on the show held a a record as well for Emmys up until very recently, I'm pretty sure. I think Ed Asner had won the most Emmys. Oh, hmm. Now I'm trying to remember. He had won the most performance awards in the history of the primetime Emmys. Wow. And was recently beat out by someone else. But yeah. I think it's Allison Janney, if I remember correctly. That, that I think could she has be won right. eight. And I think, yeah, maybe Ed Asner had won seven. Ed Asner also, I don't know if it's too early to be jumping on this because we haven't even gotten to his spinoff, which we won't talk about all that much. But <laughs> um, Ed Asner was the only person until just a couple of years ago to win both in comedy and drama categories at the Emmys for playing the same role because he won for playing Lou Grant on Mary Tyler Moore, which is obviously a comedy. And then his spinoff, Lou Grant, was a dramatic, sort of a you know comedic drama at times, but, you know, considered a drama by the Emmys. And he won for both of those. The only other person to do that is Uzo Aduba for Orange is the New Black. I knew it had to be that show. You knew it had to be Uzo, who else? It had to be Orange is the New Black, because I remember feeling that it switched from comedy to drama seemingly randomly. Yeah, after it's, well, it was in the comedy categories in its first season. And that's when Uzo Aduba won the guest actress in a comedy series for playing um, Suzanne. And the second season, they switched to dramas because the Emmy rules changed that any hour-long show was automatically considered a drama and could petition to be in the comedy categories. She was nominated then for supporting actress in a drama series for the second season and won that award as well. Wow. Fascinating tidbits. You didn't expect to hear about Uzo Aduba on the Mary Tyler Moore Show episode (laughs) of this podcast, did you? Interesting company, Ed Asner and Uzo Aduba. Yeah. You know, I I was saying for years, Uzo Aduba is the next Ed Asner. And (laughs) no one believed me. You were right. And then then I proved them all wrong when she won that second Emmy. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
<laughs> Do you want to talk about some of the, the highlights of the show? I would love to. Would you like to kick us off? Oh my gosh, yes. And it's a good one to start with. So we've basically broken down like a few of the key episodes, the key moments of the show. And the first one that we want to talk about is from season three. The episode is called The Good Time News. And this is the episode in which Mary argues for equal pay. She actually ends up getting her pay raise, but it isn't equal to the man who was holding her job before her, but she is willing to settle. And this ended up being a very controversial episode in terms of like the women's lib movement. And like it garnered a lot of criticism from feminists at the time saying that she should have maybe argued for more or even the way in which she asked for her pay raise. Like she wasn't super confident. Her voice was quavering a bit. Like there was a little bit of controversy here and I have my own opinions, but I'm curious to hear what you think about this. So I I will agree that it's looking back on it now it is kind of unfortunate <laughs> that she did settle for making a little bit less than the men who were married and had children at the same time, I don't think it's in Mary Richards' character to make a big stink about it. Honestly, I think she is the kind of person who was just always deferential to authority. And that's something that you see all the time throughout the course of the series. She's not someone who is afraid to stand up for herself necessarily, but it's not easy for her. And, right. you know, so she, you know, did say something. She did advocate for herself and she didn't get everything that she asked for but she got a little more and I think in her book that's a win whether it's a win in feminist books is a different story but that's you know the show was not made to please feminists <laughs> you know that there's some that's something that the producers and even Mary Tyler Moore herself said is you know we're not trying to be an issues show we are just trying to present the world as it is these days I completely agree I think that this is the argument that comes up in my mind a lot. And I've read in preparation for this, a bunch of different arguments about, you know, did the show go far enough to further women's rights? Did it not go far enough? Like, what are the limitations? Is it a good thing that it reflects society as it is, or should it be showing the society that should be? And like, I can talk more about that maybe later, but in in regard to this episode, a few things stand out in my mind. One, I think it's amazing that she is shown asking for this raise at all. But also Mary kind of came into her job at the news station. She initially applied for a job to be a secretary, right? And then kind of ended up getting the producer position in like the very first episode, if I'm remembering correctly, right? That's actually a point that I was going to make, too, is Mary came into WJM really just looking for a secretary job <laughs> and was made an associate producer because Lou Grant thought she had spunk and he <laughs> hated spunk. We don't know her entire like professional background, and it's very possible that even though she had been at the news station for a while at this point, that she simply didn't have as much experience as the man who had her job before her. And so I think arguing for and getting at least somewhat of a raise is a win. And I think that showing that to national audiences is a total win. Also in season three, we have a reference to 
birth control, which was a huge deal at the time. This is in the episode, You've Got a Friend. Her mom leaves her apartment and says, don't forget to take your pill. And both Mary and her father say, I won't in response. Yeah. So that's clearly not a open out loud admission of Mary, you know, being like, I'm on the pill. But, (laughs) you know, you'd certainly get the implication and an audience of the 70s when, you know, birth control was just becoming a widely talked about issue or not even issue, but its existence was (laughs) being widely talked about for the first time, really. That's something that an audience was not going to overlook. So having that admission from Mary, or not necessarily admission, but that implication from Mary that she is on the birth control pill is really such a reflection of real life, again, for, you know, so many millions of women that were starting to take it (laughs) at that time and never seeing that reflection on television or anywhere else really in media other than you know maybe feminist literature it's also such a good example of what i think the show does so well which is not only do they make it funnier by not kind of clarifying or lingering on the joke they also don't make it about like the birth control issue. It's not like the whole episode is totally focused on Mary Richards taking birth control. It's like an offhand reference and it still drives the point home. It still brings the issue up for a larger audience, but they don't make it about it that. They don't make Mm -hmm. it about the issues. It's still just about the characters. And to me, I think that that is more effective than than doing this whole big, like, dramatic episode about it or really having a conversation with her father afterward about it. It's an offhand thing, which makes it seem like it's not a big deal that women are taking birth control now. It's just a part of their lives, and it doesn't have to be controversial. Mm -hmm. I think that is so accurate you know like this was just one flippant little reference to close a scene that is not you know talked about anywhere else in the episode but you get the picture and it's a funny moment and it just it works so well and that's again the writing on the show was so brilliant in that way i think to handle issues that should have been a little more sensitive, maybe, uh, and certainly would have been more sensitive on another show, but to handle them like they kind of weren't a big deal. Yeah, and honestly, that's probably why the show has aged as well as it has, because if they had consistently just written episodes that were all about these issues facing the time, we would watch them today and it would be so irrelevant to us, but we can watch (laughs) this today. And even today, so many people, like if their dad their dad doesn't want to talk to them about taking birth control. Even if he's okay with it, he doesn't want to hear about it. Mm -hmm. So it's still relatable and it translates to a completely different generation, even if the implication is different now than it would have been then. Yeah, absolutely. Like this is, this strikes me as a joke that would work just as well on any TV show today as it did back then. Like that's amazing to me. I'm getting like goosebumps (laughs) thinking about it. Okay, so we have another controversial topic come up in season four. The episode is the Lou and Edie story. And this is the episode where 
Mary's boss, Lou, and his wife begin a trial separation, and then uh, it ultimately leads to divorce, which is one of the first instances of uh, divorce on TV. And I think that this was... This is kind of like really fun for me because originally when the creators were first working on the show, they wanted Mary to be divorced, but the network really didn't want her to. So finally in season four, the creators sort of get what they wanted, which is a divorced character on their show. Yeah, I think it's interesting, though, that they would let Lou, a you know man in his you know 40s, 50s, whatever, get divorced. But they wouldn't let Mary get divorced because like CBS just didn't think that America was ready to embrace a woman of Mary's age who is, you know, beautiful and has quote unquote has it all as a divorced woman. And, you know, that was one way in which CBS was a little bit backward and definitely put their foot down on, you know, what they would let the show get away with. So they settled with having an implication in the first episode that Mary had been living in sin as you might say. Oh, yes. Living with a man before marriage, uh, the man that she split up with before she moved to Minneapolis. So that was the kind of compromise that the creators in CBS came to. Then you get to season four and Lou and his wife of 20 years, whatever, get divorced. And it's almost like it's not that big of a deal because, yeah, Lou's a man and men can get divorced especially older men and who cares, but a younger woman like Mary, no way. America's not going to go for that. Right. It just, it makes it clear what a double standard it was. I think you're, you're absolutely right there. But the one thing that I will say that I think that they did really well, or something that I give them at least a little bit of credit for would be that his wife, Edie, gets this wonderful little monologue where she gets to talk about why she wants to leave him. And she wants to leave him basically because she spent most of her adult life with him and she just wants to experience what it would be like to be on her own. And I don't know, it's kind of beautiful, yeah, double standard with Mary, but at least we get a small sliver of a perspective of a woman who is going to be forging her own path. Yeah. And even later on in the series, Edie gets remarried and, you know, the characters go to her wedding. So it's not like she's just forgotten about. It's not like she falls off the face of the earth. Like she's still treated with dignity and respect as a part of Lou's life as the mother of his children, as someone that he was married to for, you know, more than two decades. They still consider her to be part of the show's world. Yeah. So... Our next episode we'd like to mention happens in season five. Uh, This episode is called Will Mary Richards Go to Jail? And in this episode, Mary won't reveal a new source for a story about government corruption. And this is kind of the closest the show comes to addressing the Watergate issue. But doesn't she also, this is the episode where she meets a prostitute as well. That's correct. Yes. She does end up going to jail very briefly. (laughs) And she meets a prostitute in prison who pops up in a later episode as well. Mary wants to kind of help this prostitute get her life back on track. The prostitute wants to become a clothing designer. So she makes a dress for Mary, an evening gown um, that is a little revealing for Mary's tastes. But that is an 
a later episode, I think, in season five also. Well, I wanted to just interject very, very quickly here for any true crime fans out there. The actress who played the prostitute in this episode and then the later episode, I think she was going to get a recurring role, but she was murdered and her murder is still unsolved. Wow. Yeah, I can't remember the specifics, but I, I think it was maybe just a random shooting or something like that. But yeah. Was that in the book? I don't think it was in the book. I think it was in an article that I read by the author of the book. Okay. I was going to say, I feel like if that was in the book, I would have remembered it. I just think it's funny in this episode that Mary is the last person who would ever end up in jail for anything. <laughs> you know, And that's, I think, where, where the episode is drawing its humor is, you know, she is that kind of perfect cookie cutter girl who is always terrified of doing anything wrong of you know stepping on anyone's toes of doing anything to upset anybody doing anything against the rules and she does face this dilemma of having to compromise her journalistic integrity this is something that is not totally uncommon in the world and it's one of the few times on the show that actual journalism i think is discussed yeah and you know the show is so much more just about kind of being a workplace comedy than it is about really feeling like a journalism type show and lou grant the spinoff that starts right after the conclusion of this show does feel very much more like a journalism type show this is one of the few instances i think where it's where that comes through here and with good reason because the show i think has i don't want to say it has a responsibility to do it but journalism was a very hot topic at the time and i think the show would have been remiss not to include some kind of storyline or some kind of reference to what was going on in the real world because that's what it had always done it's really in line with the show to make a commentary on what's happening in the real world but it's also just a really fun way to sort of test mary as a character and kind of see you know she is this person who who follows rules like you were saying but you know for her there are like it's sort of an exploration of her ethical her own like ethical rules that she has for herself versus like what maybe the pressure around her is to reveal this source but i don't know i think this episode would not have been as impactful if it had been any other character the humor in it comes from mary not wanting to do anything bad but the poignancy and the relevance of it also comes from mary because she is a very moral character placed in this very real dilemma that had real world implications you know the show is very smart i think in how they handled it but they also it's a funny episode still it's not like it's bogged down i don't know i think it was very deftly approached by the writers just like almost every (laughs) topic that they choose to cover including death (laughs) great segue oh thank you so much i i mean you can't talk about mary tyler moore without talking about the episode chuckles bites the dust which is in season six it is considered to be one of the best written television episodes of all time and i just watched it yesterday and i have to say it is one of the best written television episodes of all time in this episode a sort of recurring background side character uh, chuckles the clown dies and the episode explores the way in which everyone at wjm reacts to his death and mary's uncomfortable with how 
the people around her are reacting, but then ultimately she herself ends up completely losing it at the funeral. What do you have to say? (laughs) (laughs) So I think it's important to note, if you have not seen the episode, well, it's okay. If you have not watched the Mary Tyler Moore show, go watch it on Hulu right now. Yes. Like stop whatever you're doing. It's more important that you watch all of the Mary Tyler Moore show than it is for you to continue whatever it may be that you're doing right now. Including listening to this podcast. Yes, put us on pause. If you're currently walking your dog, leave the dog wherever you are, (laughs) run back to the house and start watching the show. If you are in a car, leave the car abandoned on the highway, run home and watch the show. But anyway, if you have not watched the episode Chuckles Bites the Dust, Chuckles the Clown dies in a hilarious fashion. He goes to a parade, a circus parade, dressed as Peter Peanut, one of the characters that he portrays on his WJM show. And he gets basically cracked open by an elephant who thinks he's a real peanut and, you know, tries to eat him. Yes. And so, you know, all the characters realize the humor and the, you know, sick, twisted hilarity that can be derived from his unfortunate death. But Mary does not at first until she hears it all kind of laid out in a very serious fashion at the funeral and then she gets a case of the giggles and can't hold it in and she's the only person laughing at the funeral it feels so true to life to me again that's one of the things we keep coming back to but you know people just react to death in such different ways and you don't always know how it's going to hit you but that is something that everyone can relate to anyone that has experienced any kind of loss whether it's close to them or not you can hear about a situation like someone dressed in a peanut costume being shucked by an elephant and think that it's tragic but also very funny at the same time yeah i think my favorite part of this episode was actually ted's reaction so chuckles is in this episode he's like the grand marshal of this circus parade or yeah i'm pretty sure he's the grand marshal but ted was originally Mm -hmm. going to be the grand marshal and they the news station didn't want him to and so as the episode goes on ted comes to this realization that like it could have been me. Like, I could have been the one that died, even though that's probably not true at all. But I I thought it was so fun to see Ted be kind of serious for once because he is a character that is just usually so in his own ego that he's ridiculous. And while this is ridiculous, I think that's a thought that a lot of us have. You know, if there's a car accident on the highway, you might think, you know, if I had left my apartment, three minutes earlier, that could have been me. So I I found that really interesting. I also, the other thing that stood out in this episode, and I think that the show does really well overall, but especially in this episode, there were just any little nugget that was planted early in the episode ended up coming back around by the end of the episode, including this ridiculous mobile made by (laughs) Betty White's character. It's all this food hanging from a mobile. She gives it to Mary. And at the end of the episode, Mary pulls it out of her fridge. I I don't know why, but it just really got me. I just thought it was so funny because it just kept (laughs) being touched by all these different characters and eventually came 
back around. Yeah, that's something that I wouldn't consider that to be one of the show's trademarks. Like I can think of other shows that have, you know, little seeds that they might plant throughout an episode that end up making a big payoff later on in the episode, things like that. But that wasn't necessarily something that Mary Tyler Moore's show was known for. But I think that made it even more rewarding, kind of, whenever that happened in this episode, because it's just such a, it would have been so easy to just forget about the mobile and never, you know, pull it back out of the fridge. Just again, the writing, man. So good. I will say, when I first watched this episode, it struck me a little bit close to home because several years ago, there was a woman that I'd known my whole life um, that had attended my church. And, you know, she was very close friends with my mom and she was just a couple of years older than my mom. So she was, you know, I think in her late 50s at the time. And my mom texted me one night while I was watching the first episode of The Good Place. Okay. I was starting to catch up on The Good Place because it had just premiered that year. And The Good Place is a show in which characters all died in a hilarious fashion and go to the, you know, the afterlife, right? Right. And I'm watching this first episode of The Good Place right after the scene where Michael, played by Ted Danson, explains to Eleanor, played by Kristen Bell, how she died, which was, you know, a ridiculous series of unfortunate, hilarious events. And right after that, my mom texts me and says, did you hear what happened to, I won't give the name, um, but her friend. And I was like, no, what? And my mom says, she died in a lawnmower accident. Oh my God. And I was like, what? And so my mom like lays out what happened. And it's this terrible tragedy that, you know, she died, you know, so young and with absolutely no warning. It's just horrible. But then there's this little part inside of me that's like, she died in a lawnmower accident. (laughs) Like, I, I cannot laugh at it because I'm so distraught that she has died. But it's like, if there were ever something to laugh at. It's that. And I, like, I did not laugh at all during the funeral or viewing or anything. Or, like, I never laughed at her death at all. But I, like, watched this episode and I was like, this is exactly what I was feeling at the time. Because if I didn't know her personally, right, it would be so much easier for me to laugh at it. Well, and laughing is really all you can do sometimes in in the face of something so serious yes but like because i had been watching the good place i could not continue watching that episode because it was just so real to me in that (laughs) moment like the the show stopped being funny to me at that second wow so like i had to i let the good place go for a little while and had to come back to it at a later date but yeah that was something that just struck me with this episode like how death just happens sometimes when you least expect it and it is usually not funny (laughs) but there are elements to it sometimes to certain stories and certain deaths that just make you want to chuckle (laughs) if i can use a pun (laughs) chuckles the clown no matter how tragic and and unfortunate the death is yeah just another part of the reality of our world absolutely something the show shows so well so let's talk about one final episode and the it is final. the final episode the last show is the name of the season seven finale it's an episode in which the characters except for ted who work at wjm are all fired by 
the new owner of the station. And the owner has decided that there's either a problem in front of the camera or behind the camera. And he has decided that the problem is behind the camera, despite the years of evidence that (laughs) Ted is the problem. (laughs) So... Lou, Mary, Murray, and Sue Ann, all of WJM's employees, have gotten the boot and are off to find other ventures. So this episode is considered by a lot of people to be one of the best written series finales in television history. And I absolutely agree with that. After watching it, just the way that it ties things up in that last episode, because there's not really a lead up. It just happens within that episode. Like there's not any warning that everyone's going to be fired or that, you know, things are really changing at WJM until the first couple of minutes. Of the episode for only being a 25 minute episode i think it does such a good job of leaving our characters in a good enough place where we're not concerned about them you know we don't know what all of them are doing with their futures but we know that they're going to be okay and they're going to stay in each other's lives because they are so important to each other and you know in that way it is Again, a realistic show where it's not like they're all going to continue working there forever. You know, sometimes things like this happen and people have to go their separate ways and figure out what their next step is and take what they've learned during that previous step and all of their other steps and, you know, make a new path forward. That's what Mary has resolved to do and all of the other characters as well. I just think it's a kind of perfect finale. I have not watched it yet because... I am watching the show and I wanted to prep these episodes, but I want to save it because I really would like to just watch it when I reach that point. Everything that you've said sounds perfect to me. And I like the fact that they don't know it's happening until that episode, because even that is reflective of real life. Sometimes you don't know when the end is coming, you know, I don't know. It sounds more sad than chuckles dying. (laughs) It's not. I mean, I think it's an impactful episode because it does make you realize just how special the show was and how special the characters were because they seem so real to you as a viewer but also so real to each other within the world of the show their reactions to not knowing when they will see each other again not knowing what the future holds for them i think are so realistic and so true there's one moment in particular that really just it gets me. Okay. There's a moment when, I hope I'm not spoiling this for you, Elena. It's okay. But Lou Grant doesn't want to be emotional. You know, he's turning away from the group and trying not to cry or anything. And he just eventually turns to everyone and says, with his voice kind of breaking, I treasure you people. Oh. And it just, like, it makes me want to cry because I treasure these characters, you know? And... that's something that for Lou, for his character, took a lot for him to say, but you know that he meant it. And you know that Ed Asner, as an actor, meant it to the other actor that he was working with. And you can just feel the bond that all of those people had with each other. And that's, you know, I think a testament to how special the show is, not just for the viewers, but for the people who worked on it. Okay, so... Now that we've covered some individual episodes, we want to look at the impact of the series as a whole, what it means today, almost, well, 50 years on from its premiere, and what it meant 
for all of that time in between when it aired and today and the ways that it revolutionized television because if ever there was a show that revolutionized television i really think this This is is it. it so one thing that i find fascinating about the show that kind of changed the way that television characters were developed and viewed by an audience is that mary is just kind of an every woman she is not exceptional necessarily she is of course beautiful and smart and funny and kind and everything like that but she is just a regular woman who does not have any you know truly remarkable talent or high-minded aspirations or anything like that but she is just working a normal job that doesn't require any superhuman skills i guess if that makes sense that does make sense i actually i thought this was an interesting point that you made because while on one hand i kind of agree that she is an every woman but i also think that out of the entire cast of characters mary is arguably the least flawed character and i think that it is the side characters that end up really reflecting how we as viewers are more than Mary in a lot of instances. Like Mary Mm -hmm. is almost nicer than people are in real life. And whereas Mm. like Rhoda or Lou are flawed in the way that we ourselves are. So it's, I don't know. I, I feel a little bit torn on whether or not I really think she's an every woman. I think she is in, in some ways, but in other ways she is better than us. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think so. There are definitely Marys out there in the world, but I think you're right that she is more perfect than most people are, but I don't think it's unrealistic for her to have that level of perfectionism within her character. She is supposed to be desirable. You know, she is supposed to be an ideal, but she isn't meant to be the only perception of a woman, if that makes sense. That makes sense. I think that you you are right. And I think, again, it, it kind of, for me, connects back to even if she is in some ways better than the rest of us, she is in her interactions with the world around her and the, the people around her very relatable. And those relationships feel real because they are flawed in some ways. So I think within the context of television, there hadn't been a character like Mary, who was just a normal person, not doing some kind of like fancy showbiz job or being a secret agent or a detective or anything like that. Like she is just a normal person, but she is aspirational in a way. Like people still want to be her, but it's not because she's got these remarkable skills or talents it's not because she has some amazing fancy job that everyone in the world would want to do like she's an associate producer at the lowest rated news show in minneapolis like that's a glamorous life to some people from tiny towns but in the big scope of things she's not a big shot she is someone that people dream of becoming because of who she is not because of what she does And I guess in a sense, that is what makes her so much a feminist icon to people. Mm -hmm. She's remarkable in that she is just 
making her way through this world as herself. She's not relying on a husband or father or anything like that. Like she's on her own. She's doing this job. And while it isn't glamorous or, you know, she's not a spy, but she's doing this thing that is still so worthy of admiration because she's just doing it on her own. She's going to make it after (laughs) all, as the theme song says. And that is something to be applauded because it was so new at the time for television. You hadn't seen a woman who was just making it, not really concerned with trying to find a man and settle down. I think that's part of what bothers me so much uh, about the backlash that it received at the time from like the women's lib movement and like the Gloria Steinem critique of the show is that the fact that this show was on the air at all is such a step forward. And while this show may have not gone as far as some feminists would have wanted, this show paved the way for like every show that came after it. It's interesting because I, I feel like I'm straying a little bit from the the initial point here, but you know, reading the critiques that even exist today, like I read an academic paper today about how the sitcom form itself is flawed. The sitcom always represents a family, even if the characters aren't blood related. And Mary's role within her sitcom family is only that of like a daughter or a mother or a wife. And they cite all these examples of, you know, she's sort of like a mother to Georgette and she is sort of like a daughter to Lou because he, you know, guides her through this world. And I get that. Like, you can make that argument. You can make that critique for sure. But you you can't deny that if this show didn't exist, like shows that are like it is a direct predecessor to like every female centric show that came after it. And still to this mm-hmm. day, like Sex in the City, 30 Rock, like even girls, like all of these shows are in some way influenced by this. And sometimes you have to crawl before you can walk. You have to walk before you can run. Like Mary Richards was a trailblazer, even though she was mm-hmm. not necessarily exceptional. And even if all of her attempts to, you know, as we were saying earlier, get a pay raise, even if it didn't go 100% the way she wanted it to, the fact that she tried it all made her a trailblazer. I think that's so true. Just because she wasn't out there fighting for things like, you know, abortion or for the Equal Rights Amendment or anything like that, it doesn't mean that she wasn't a true representation of what fem- of what women were at that time. You know, she was conceived to be a real human female character and not every woman was out there waving signs for the era not every woman was reading ms magazine yeah it's you know i think the show was smart in kind of towing that line of making mary progressive enough without making her unlikable or alienating certain parts of the audience from her because in making her that sort of quote-unquote good girl uh, who was still modern and not necessarily concerned with following the traditional role of the woman in society you open up the audience to so many more people whose eyes can kind of be open to the way things actually are and to seeing 
a different kind of woman than they might be used to seeing or they might be willing to acknowledge exists. Yeah, absolutely. You know, even separating a little bit from the show to Mary Tyler Moore herself, you know, she did not identify as a feminist. She didn't do a lot to further the movement. In fact, like many of her quotes at the time are just downright kind of confusing about her. She <laughs> I, Like her quote about like, I like women as much as like anyone does, basically. <laughs> like she, <laughs> but you know, she ended up having such a huge impact, even if she didn't identify as a feminist, her playing this role and her dedication to getting the show made. And that ended up doing more than maybe people who were out on the street holding signs. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. it, it kind of weird aside here, but like the other night I was uh, having a Zoom phone call with Zach, my boyfriend and his family, and we were discussing like what makes an action political. And I brought up the example of like Princess Diana visiting AIDS patients. And to me, that's a political act. Even if she didn't intend it to be, it became political because it was such a controversial topic at the time. And his family was kind of arguing the opposite, which is that it's apolitical, it was just humanitarian. And like this show, it really made me think about this whole Mary Tyler Moore thing because, you know, even if she didn't say she was a feminist, she was a feminist through her actions and through her platform, even if the intention wasn't there. And I think that the show mm -hmm. itself was kind of that way in a sense. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I agree with that. Like the producers, including Mary Tyler Moore, were all very open, as I think we said earlier, that the show was not trying to be about issues like shows that were also on at the time like all in the family or mod or good times where it's like every week we're having a political discussion of some kind you know the show can walk that line between representing what's actually going on in the world and making a big deal about it you know and i think by not making a big deal about it you can have a bigger impact sometimes because there is going to be a certain group of people who like that group is going to tune you out if all they think that you're doing is hitting them over the head with something that you want them to believe yeah absolutely and i don't think that mary tyler moore does that at all it definitely takes stances on certain things and even the stance that it takes might be quiet they might not be right out there on the surface but you know where the show is coming from and whether you agree with it or not you can still enjoy all of the show and not feel like you are learning a lesson yeah. and i think that that ties into another point that i know we wanted to talk about which is that the situations that the show focuses on from like episode to episode are not usually like over the top they're almost always mm -hmm. focused on like small things or like little things that the characters are going through in their lives that then get like kind of blown up in their own minds in a way and that's just ultimately almost always going to be funnier and more enjoyable to watch than you know trying to tackle this big thing there's so much I, I how am i trying to say this like there's just more humor in like focusing on these smaller things or focusing on these issues in a softer kind of way you can make it funny and it can still be impactful and enjoyable to watch yeah i think i had referenced like all in the family a little bit ago 
And All in the Family was a more successful show from a rating standpoint than Mary Tyler Moore's show was. So obviously it's not like they were totally alienating their audience by discussing you know, political issues. But you look at All in the Family now and it seems like so much more a time capsule of what the nation was experiencing at that time. And you look at Mary Tyler Moore and it still feels current. It still feels relevant. It still feels like it's just as funny today as it was back then. And most shows do not age that well if they do hit the political stuff hard. Yeah. If they really do take stances most of the time, those stances are going to feel dated at a certain point. And like very little about Mary Tyler Moore feels dated to me. Yeah, I agree. And there's a few more modern shows like I I feel similarly about like Sex and the City at this point. You watch it and the way they dress and their references are outdated. But the show itself is still funny because ultimately it follows the same pattern that Mary Tyler Moore show kind of set out, which is like it's much more about the characters and the things that they're going through in their lives. And so you can watch it now like 20-ish years later and it stands up and same with Mary Tyler Moore like you watch it now and it you might not catch some of the references but the stories themselves are still so relatable that's true I think before Mary Tyler Moore I don't think it can take all of the credit for this but I think before Mary Tyler Moore there was this idea that on a sitcom the situations that the main character would get into would be so much more like physical a lot of times anyway um there would be some big you know kerfuffle some (laughs) event that happens that really triggers some outlandish response from these wacky over-the-top characters i you know i just think about like i love lucy right or um even the dick van dyke show which mary tyler moore was on uh, several years before she got her own show so many of the episodes there involve Dick Van Dyke just doing silly, ridiculous things. And it's funny, sure, but it doesn't feel like real life because no one's life is just a series of silly, ridiculous things. (laughs) Um, Some people have more silly, ridiculous things in their lives than others, but I think one of the ways that Mary Tyler Moore is weirdly revolutionary is that it makes mundanity funny. Yeah, It makes these situations that everyone can relate to and that everyone has experienced funny in a way that you hadn't really realized they could be funny before or that you thought were funny only to you and you didn't realize that oh other people have experienced that too you know or uh, i've gone through something just like that i know what that feels like and yeah it's funny but it's also just a real life thing that happens to people and part of that too is because the show hired the writing staff that it did and like allowed these female writers behind the show to write their real lives. Like listening Mm -hmm. to the book, it's astounding to me how many storylines were directly ripped from these women, like in their own lives. And yeah, it, it just, I don't know. It, it's not surprising that it's relatable when you allow your writers to write like that. One thing about the female writers going on that, it does surprise me, though, how little changed 
for female writers <laughs> after the Mary Tyler Moore I show. Know. Now things are definitely are better today than they were back then. I guess, but I'm not by that but, much. But not by that much. That is the crazy thing. I found a list of statistics on womenandhollywood.com. If you would like to reference this yourself, that website has compiled a report to show different figures on the roles that women play in front of and behind the scenes on television during the 2019-2020 television season. And they say that 36% of TV writers in this season are women. On programs with at least one woman executive producer, women accounted for 39% of writers. On programs with exclusively male executive producers, women comprised 12% of writers. This, like honestly made me so angry when i first read it specifically the part of the the role of the executive producer and what an impact that makes on the percentage of writers that would be women and it just made me think about real life and instances in my own life where you know when you don't have women in leadership roles or in executive roles, it's a trickle down effect of like women just not being represented overall. And it's just so important that like, we just have more women doing these jobs and because it it can only benefit, like even like Mary Tyler Moore, I'm getting too passionate and I feel like I'm not gonna make my point well, but like part of what made Mary Tyler Moore such a success is just like allowing for a different viewpoint. It, can only benefit the world and like Mary Tyler Moore allowed that to happen even if it was only 25% that's incredible for the time and still would be a lot for today so I don't know it just it makes me it's a really interesting statistic and it just goes to show you that like I don't know just there should be more women calling the shots that's all I'm gonna say (laughs) Just to clarify, it was 25 out of the 75 credited writers okay. were female. So that's actually 33%, which, you know, that was in the 70s. And just to reiterate, 36% of TV writers today are women. So it's even worse than I thought it was. <laughs> so, like, that's a 3% improvement over the Mary Tyler Moore show. 50 years. You know, 50 years ago to today. And sure, like this is the average for all television series that was one television series at the time why do you think that that is i i don't know like it it clearly has gotten better but it's still not where it should be it's just interesting to me because you know stem kind of makes sense like the fact that there are not as many women doing like science and math based jobs but i feel like women are more encouraged to do creative things or at least like equally encouraged to be creative so it's weird to me that even like in hollywood it's still so uneven Mm -hmm. i think so there is a debate that has raged and less so in recent years but in hollywood there's been a historical idea that we need to ask the question are women funny and just to, the, the, I feel like the debate has pretty much been settled, but the answer is yes, <laughs> women are funny. There is no doubt about that. But there are still people with these outdated ideas that hiring a woman 
is less a chance for comedic success than hiring a man. Yeah. There are people that are just so entrenched in that idea that men know what's funny, decide what's funny, and will ultimately prove what's funny by, you know, showing up at the box office, by watching TV, and that women will not be as influential in the same way, whether behind the scenes, in front of the camera, or in the audience. And that's just not true, because women consume media just as much as men do. Women are capable of doing the same jobs in front of or behind the camera as men, and, you know, sometimes doing an even better job, like they did on Mary Tyler Moore Show, writing some of these incredible episodes and you know, directing episodes. Female directors were basically unheard of on TV at the time of the airing. And I don't have statistics on how many female directors the show had, but it did have several. It had many. You know, it's it's really disappointing that the show did not fully demolish that idea that women aren't funny, but it's even more alarming that that idea still persists to some degree today. Well... If we could talk about another really uh, feminine topic, uh, do you want to talk about the clothes of the show? Yes, let's. <laughs> I didn't know this uh, until I think you told me when we were talking about this, that uh, in some of the seasons, they rewore outfits and they sourced from like a specific designer. And so the characters would wear certain articles of clothing over and over again, which added another element of realism to the show. Yeah, the costume designer for the first season actually made an arrangement with designer called Evan Picone. Evan hyphen Picone. I imagine that's how you say it. <laughs> I'm not familiar with that designer. Evan hyphen. I don't know, Elena, if it, <laughs> I don't know, Elena, if you are an Evan Picone fan. I, I've never heard never um, heard of. Well, apparently they were around in the 70s, at least. I don't know if they are still in existence today. But the costume designer wanted the show to feel real and wanted Mary to not just have an unlimited supply of glamorous designer clothing. So she wanted to supply a wardrobe from a designer that made sensible clothes for a modern businesswoman <laughs> to wear. So Mary's entire wardrobe from that first season came from that one designer. And you see her wear multiple articles of clothing at different times in different outfits, maybe. Like maybe she wears the same jacket with a different ensemble underneath. Maybe she wears the same skirt with different tops. Maybe she wears the same you know, scarf many times. But it's something that I had not seen on television before and to be honest it's not something that i can recall seeing since i know i was thinking specifically of the tv series girls uh, which is mm. a much more recent show and in that show i re i don't know why it sticks out in my mind so much but i remember when i watched that show just being baffled at all of the different clothes that lena dunham's character had and she like mm. literally i don't think ever wore the same thing twice and i thought it was really weird because she was like not in a very good financial position throughout most of the show mm -hmm. and you know with with like a carrie bradshaw type like sex in the city it was very important to her character to like constantly be wearing different clothes but even she mm -hmm. does like 
rewear certain things, but nothing on the level of this. The only thing that would even compare at all is like a cartoon where the drawing is mm-hmm. the same from week to week or certain things are the same from week to week. It, it really just isn't at all like a part of TV. So I think one of the ways that the show felt so unique to me is that the supporting characters were so vivid and fully realized on this show in a way that I don't think any show before it had really done. You had people who, like Rhoda and like Lou and like Ted, who were just such recognizable, distinct entities that people that you knew in your real life reminded you of them. I think, you know, there were people who would say, oh, I'm such a Rhoda, or oh, she's such a Phyllis, you know, and that that was, you didn't have that really before this show. You think back over television history, and the supporting characters were not as big a driver of any of the action that was going on, but also they were just mostly caricatures Gilligan's Island, where it's this ensemble cast of sorts, but everyone is still just a caricature. Mm -hmm. That's a guess to steal your word, but yeah. I thought I I love that you said you that people were saying that they were a Mary or they were a Rhoda. After I watched like two episodes of the show, I went to work the next day and I said to my friend, I was like, I feel like you and I have really Mary and Rhoda vibes. But I think, yeah, I mean, not only were the characters themselves fully fleshed out as individuals, it, for me, the way in which they interact is so much more real than any show that predated this show and even some after it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Specifically, Mary and Rhoda's relationship for me feels so real because Rhoda does get jealous of Mary Mm -hmm. and there is like a competitiveness between them in a weird way and the way they pop in and each out of each other's like apartments and daily lives like it feels really true to reality and the workplace portion of the show is the same like the interaction between all these co-workers who annoy each other but also love each other it's so much more real and they end up you know interfering in each other's lives in certain ways it just works and it is so different from you know i always think of like i love lucy as just being so flat Mm -hmm. like this is so dynamic in comparison to something like that yes and throughout the course of seven seasons you had not just mary growing and changing as a person but really every character kind of got an arc to develop and that just shows like that she was moving up in the world i guess but then you also have like ted and georgette moving to her building later on you know you have lou moving to a new house at one point you have rhoda for purposes of a spin-off of course moving to new york i think that like just the character development that you see among not just mary but all of the characters throughout the course of the show is fascinating for the time that it was taking place in yeah and even the show's most uh most extreme personalities which for me would be like you know ted is a pretty out there character even phyllis to a certain extent is kind of 
like an over-the-top kind of character. Even those characters are nuanced and they feel real. Like we all know someone like Ted in our real lives Mm -hmm. and they don't make him so flat that he doesn't feel real. He still has emotions. He still has insecurities, even though he is sort of this buffoonish egomaniac. Yeah, I don't know. I it everyone was handled so well and definitely I think provided a template for shows to come. I think that these stereotypes are I, I don't want to I guess I shouldn't say stereotypes, but these character types are still kind of utilized in shows even today. I think that it was 30 Rock that really drew on a lot of the Mary Tyler Moore archetypes if that's what we want to call them yeah it definitely did i mean 30 rock is my favorite television show of all time hands down no question i will just put that out there and i knew just from watching interviews and things that you know 30 rock had been heavily influenced by mary tyler moore i didn't fully appreciate just how much until i watched mary tyler moore show of course and found all of that out myself still like 30 rock just a hair better but <laughs> but i i do think that you know obviously it wasn't the only show that it was influenced by there are so many shows that in some way can draw like the influence can be tied back to mary tyler moore because it just redefined what it meant to to have a female lead character on television to have women working behind the scenes on television to have supporting characters that felt like real people who could do real things to have multiple storylines going sometimes in one episode before mary tyler moore you basically had just an a story on any given sitcom where there's one problem presented in the episode and by the end of the episode that one problem is going to be resolved and that's it that's all you care about for those 25 minutes and mary tyler moore opened up this idea that you could have multiple different characters going through different things and that they don't all have to coincide that was one thing i was really gonna say is that this is something that tv today does all of the time which is especially with an ensemble cast you'll have your main character who you mostly follow but then you'll have episodes throughout the season that really feel like you know i don't know why i'm thinking of Grey's anatomy right now but like meredith is the main character but you'll have like the christina episode that is more centered on her and like you'll do that for a lot of the characters and i thought that mary tyler moore didn't go there fully but definitely especially as it progressed did go there like you know you look at the lou and edie story episode like that's a lou episode mary's involved and she has her own stuff going on but the show shifted focus and even did whole episodes that really didn't always revolve around mary and even if the subplots in those episodes aren't as fully fleshed out as they would be today the fact that it skipped around and highlighted different people was remarkable and was totally new you would be hard pressed to find a show that has aired since mary tyler moore that does not owe it some debt of gratitude for the way that it changed writing the show truly was televisionary that's the name of our (laughs) podcast too by the way follow us on instagram at televisionary podcast (laughs) I was going to ask you, and you may not have an answer, but 
is there a show in your mind that is comparable or a movie that is comparable to the Mary Tyler Moore show in its revolutionary quality? Because mm. I feel like with Mary Tyler Moore, you can almost divide it into before and after. I think that's so true. I was really trying to think of something that I thought was like a before and after moment. And I mean... <laughs> Yeah, like Survivor ushered in like reality show. So maybe in a sense, like that's that. But I was trying to think of even like a movie that really changed everything. And I couldn't, I couldn't really get anywhere. I can't think of a movie. I will say there are certain shows that for me, I think took TV in a new direction for sure. Most of them were not before Mary Tyler Moore, though. The only one that I can think of offhand that I think really had as big an impact was probably I Love Lucy, just because it changed the way that television was produced. Yeah. Which we'll probably talk about that on another episode. So I won't, you know, I won't get into that too much now, but that's the only show that I can think of offhand. After that show, I feel like Seinfeld probably could be divided into before and after just because in the same way that Mary Tyler Moore kind of made television more sophisticated, I feel like Seinfeld in a way, and this is not to be disrespectful of it because it's a, an amazing show for what it achieved, but it almost dumbed it down to the point where you could have a genius show about nothing. You know, right. it's like you could have the show that was so remarkable and so spectacular without seeming like it was trying to be anything at all <laughs> so it's maybe the anti-mary tyler moore show but still no less influential i think all right well i think we've come to the end of our discussion i feel like we've covered a lot of ground but a lot of it was good ground I think so. I'm really glad that we did this episode because otherwise I would not have discovered this amazing show. Yeah, definitely. As I said earlier in this episode, if you have not watched the Mary Tyler Moore show, you owe it to yourself to drop everything that you are doing and go do it right now. It is all seven seasons are on Hulu and it is a show that I promise you will hold up for you. It will not be a chore to go through those seven seasons. You will laugh. You may cry. You will want to wear Rhoda's headscarves. Yep. I feel like you can't watch the show and not love it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm someone who's very critical of anything made before like 1995. And <laughs> this show, if I could watch it and enjoy it, it's good. Like it and not that, you know, I'm above all of the critics or everything, but like, I really just don't like watching things that are very outdated and I love watching this and I will finish it all. So you mm -hmm. should definitely watch. Absolutely. Also, I don't know if we said the name of the book that we referenced enough, but there is a book that Elena and I both read that has been hugely informative and a, a, I think a very entertaining read as a fan of the show. It is called Mary and Lou and Rhoda and Ted and all the brilliant minds who made the Mary Tyler Moore show a classic. It is written by Jennifer Keishan Armstrong, and I would highly recommend it if you are a fan of the Mary Tyler Moore show or if you listened to this podcast and are interested in learning more about it. It really does seem to be the definitive source on anything Mary Tyler Moore. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. If this is the end of the discussion, I think... I know the most appropriate way to end this episode, Elena. 
Uh, and how is that, Cody? That is by reciting the immortal words of the one and only <laughs> Chuckles the Clown from the Mary Tyler Moore Show. A little song, a little dance, a little seltzer down your pants. Truer words have never been spoken. <laughs> Amen. Amen. All right. Well, I hope to see you next time or hear hear you next time. I hope. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, With that, uh, we come to a close. Thank you for listening to Televisionary. That was Cody Hoffman. And that was Elena Hiller. Let you hear us next time. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Televisionary. If you like what you heard, share this episode with a friend. You can follow us on Instagram at Televisionary Podcast, and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. Bye!